Well, please keep that uh, Bible reading open and we'll just pray. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. He also said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Lord Jesus, would you send your spirit to anoint me that my words may proclaim freedom and life and give each one of us open hearts to hear, to receive, and to act upon what we hear for your glory. Amen. Well, all jobs these days seem to involve some kind of CPD, continuing professional development. Now, as a French teacher, I reckon the best CPD for me is to spend time in France, living amongst French people, speaking French, thinking in French, and that's my excuse for taking the Eurostar next weekend and heading for Paris. Now, as a student living in Paris, I loved speaking the language, loved the way the French do things differently. But just occasionally, I would wonder, what if I meet a French man and fall in love and end up spending the rest of my life here? How would I feel about that? And I became aware of a nagging worry that this French man might not really know me, not the real me. Because when I speak French, I become slightly different. Anyway, it didn't happen, so those worries are all history. But tonight, I want us to think about the second half of Romans 6 as describing a permanent move from one country or land to another and for us to explore together the impacts of such a move. So you should have your Bibles in one hand, uh, Romans chapter 6, page 1133, and in the other hand, this sort of map, on which I encourage you to note down the key points from this passage and anything that strikes you from what I say. So have you all got something to write with? Yes, Steve's got some pencils otherwise. Great stuff. Told you I was a teacher. Anyway, Paul is, of course, actually talking about a move that has happened in time and not in space. But when I first read this passage, I found it very dense and wordy, and it really helped me to draw it in visual terms. So I hope it may help you too. Well, let's start at verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. And then the start of verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, and verse 22... But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. Do you see that Paul is describing a radical and decisive change of state which these Roman Christians 
and all of us who are Christians have undergone. And it's similar to moving from one country and living permanently in another one. So if you like, they used to live over here on the left-hand side, and we'll call that the land of sin, the land of sin. And that represents the past. But they've crossed over the sea, a few little waves there to help you, and now they live permanently on the right-hand side, in the present, and we'll call that the land of righteousness or the land of right living. Now, the two countries reflect the character of their heads of state. The one you have to obey if you live over on the left is sin. You have no choice. Sin is the head of the state. But across the sea in the land of righteousness, it is God who rules. God, the one who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Now, before we go on to look more closely at the living conditions in the two countries and the relative life expectancy, let's stop and check out the crossing. That's the bit in the middle. How did they, how did we get from there to here? Well, look with me again at verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin. Sin is our natural state as human beings. We are born over here. We have no choice. Our slavery to sin is automatic until we are converted. Now, in a sense, conversion is the territory or some of the territory you looked at last week in the first half of the chapter. You saw how the believer is one who has died with Christ buried with him through baptism into death, and now is raised with Christ, lives with Christ, and in Christ. But in our passage, Paul describes conversion, and I'm again in verse 17, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Now, the form of teaching refers to the body of truth, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this teaching convicts our hearts and tells us that we are sinners. And then that same gospel calls for a wholehearted response of obedience and submission to Christ as Lord. You see, the word entrusted means handed over to. And it reminds us uh, that the idea is that we're placed under the authority of Christ's teaching. Thanks be to God reminds us that this whole process is the work of God's grace. God's grace. And the impact of conversion is so radical that verse 18, you have been set free. Now notice the passive, you've been set free. We are not able to set ourselves free. God has done that for us. So set us free from sin, left-hand side, and you have become slaves 
to righteousness. It's a completely different country which thinks and speaks and acts using a completely different language. Well, for the citizens over here on the left, remember that all of us, before the grace of God, comes to us. Sin colors and controls everything in their lives. Now, I'm not just talking about doing sinful actions or doing wrong things. Sin is everything other than the total worship of God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, and all of my strength. Sin is serving myself instead of serving God. Now, you will have noticed, as you heard it read, how many times Paul talks about how they used to be slaves to sin. Verse 16, verse 17, verse 20, and sin as being something they had to be set free from. You see, sin enslaves. And just like a language shapes how we think, what we say, and what we do, so sin shapes everything that takes place this side of the channel. Its citizens have no choice but to sin. So the employment status of everyone over here is slaves to sin. And you see this head of state is a bully. And obedience to sin is compulsory. But what of our new home? Paul seems to talk as though its citizens are also slaves. Look at verse 18. You have been set free from sin, one slavery, and become slaves to righteousness. Now, Paul is aware that using the word slavery is problematic, would have very negative connotations in the culture. Hence his comment in verse 19, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. In other words, you will find it hard to understand. So if you're finding it hard to understand, good company. Certainly, in the sense that a slave always serves someone else, the Christian has definitively swapped allegiance And verse 22, but now you have become slaves to God. He is our new master. He is the one we obey. And Paul himself, though, saw this new slavery as a positive identity to be embraced. You may recall right at the start of the letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul introduces himself as Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. You maybe didn't spot it because our translation has the word servant, but it's exactly the same as the one used here for slave. So being a Christian is like being a slave in terms of our obedience to the will of our new master, except it is a very different kind of slavery. Whereas the slavery of sin is cruel and destructive, God, our master, is gracious and loving. Whereas sin forces our response, God has given us freedom, freedom 
to serve him. So what language do the slaves of God speak? Well, Paul uses a variety of words to describe what shapes their thinking and their actions, so you can choose which you find most helpful. The first is obedience. Look at verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So as slaves to God, we choose not to do what we want. We choose to obey what he wants. And what that looks like is a growth in righteousness or living right, living in the way that pleases God. Now, later on in Romans, if you stick the course from chapter 12 onwards, Paul will spell out what this looks like in practice. But for now, he gives them the principle. Look at second half of verse 19. So now, offer them, that is, the parts of your body, in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. Be holy for the Lord your God is holy. That has been the call of God on the lives of his people right down through the scriptures. But now in Christ, God has made that possible. Having been set free from sin, we can now choose to and have the power to live righteous and holy lives. So obedience, righteousness, holiness. This is the language of God's kingdom. And although its citizens are slaves, it is a voluntary slavery, a willing slavery, recognizing that God's ways, his righteousness, actually leads us into life. So hopefully we're all a bit clearer about what Paul is teaching here, because Paul uses it to address the question of an imaginary critic. Look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? In other words, now that we are no longer required to obey the law of Moses to make ourselves right with God which Paul has shown in the previous chapter of Romans to be impossible anyway. And we've come into the grace, come into the free gift of God's forgiveness through Christ. Does that give us a license to live how we like and go on sinning? That's the question. Let me put it the question another way. Imagine the temptation comes into your mind it won't matter if I compromise a little on God's ways. Everyone I know thinks it's okay to gossip about your boss or to say you're underage because you look underage or to sleep with your boyfriend when you're not married or to get a bit drunk and lose self-control. And God will forgive me anyway. 
so why not? Well, such thinking provokes outrage from Paul. By no means. God forbid. And he goes on to give two robust reasons why the Christian should not go back to sinning. Let's be clear about these two. First of all, you have been set free from sin. Now, this is the key truth of the passage. So if you remember nothing else from my sermon, get this one. You, every one of you in Christ, has been set free from sin. We've seen it comes twice in the passage, verse 18 and verse 22. So instead of being the attractive prospect which it may seem at first sight, sin is in fact a horrible taskmaster who will enslave us forever. Why would a released prisoner choose to go back to imprisonment? Why would you want to live here as if you're living over there? It makes no sense. You have been set free from sin. And it's such a key truth because we need to stand our ground on it. The power sin has over me has been broken once and for all by Christ. So although the tempter's voice may seem very strong, the truth is I never have to give in to it. The only power sin has over me is the power of bluff. So we must learn, my friends, we must learn to recognize the tempter's voice, recognize where our own areas of weakness are, and especially be on your guard when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're feeling lonely, and when you're tired. Be clear and remind ourselves of the true nature of all sin. For sin is sin is sin. There are no big sins and little sins. And then we deliberately go in the opposite direction. Let me share how this can work for me. I had a good friend, I'll call her Wendy, who hurt me badly in the past and let me down when I needed her. I did forgive her at the time, but from time to time, especially if I am low, Wendy can come back into my mind. And that's where all sin starts, you see. And I start to recall her failings. If I nurse those thoughts, if I keep replaying what happened... I strengthen my sense of self-righteousness. I was right. She shouldn't have done that. And that's followed by self-pity. And then judgment on her. At first, it can feel good. But let me tell you, it is entirely destructive. It goes round and round in my head feeding all those negative messages and robbing me of my peace with God. So what I must do to break that cycle and ideally not get into it at all is recognize as quickly as possible this is a boat heading back across the channel. 
but I don't have to get on it. So I start praying a blessing on Wendy instead. For Christ has not only freed me, freed us from sin, but he's freed me to live a righteous life. And that is better in every way. So first reason not to go back to sin, we have been set free. Don't choose imprisonment. Secondly, we know where each way is heading. Paul asks his readers to weigh up the relative benefits, and in the original it talks about the fruit, of living life in the land of sin against those of being a slave to God. Look at verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. In other words, you thought you were free. And it was a kind of freedom where righteousness exercised no control over you. He goes on, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? From the perspective of now and our belonging to the kingdom of God, sin carries with it the experience of shame. We know in our hearts that we would feel ashamed to admit openly some of our thoughts and actions. Those sinful things that seem so attractive when we're thinking about them. Now more than that, sin takes an ever downward spiral. What verse 29 refers to as slavery to impurity and ever increasing wickedness. And what do we get at the end of the life? Slaving away in the land of sin, what I've called the pension pot. End of verse 21. These things result in death. Or verse 16. Slaves to sin, which leads to death. Not just physical dying, that's going to come to all of us. But death as eternal separation an eternal channel that cuts us off from the God of righteousness. Balanced against this is verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Life in greater fullness now and life forever in God's company. So for the Christian to go back into sin is a no-brainer. The pension pot is not worth having. Now finally, Paul sums up his arguments with two powerful images, what I've called the national symbol of each country. And this is verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. On the left-hand side, the past for you, if you are in Christ, people get what they deserve. That's what wages are. You do the work, you get paid for it. But the symbol of God's kingdom is gift, free 
gift, gracious gift, something we don't deserve, given freely by God, given out of love and generosity to all those who are in Christ Jesus, his son. We willingly dabble with sin at our peril. So what do we do with this? L.P. Hartley's classic, The Go-Between, starts with the line, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And we would do well to remember that. So if the key truth is you have been set free from sin, the key application is live free. Live free. Don't go back to sin. As it says in verse 19, offer the parts of your body, your thoughts, your hands, your eyes, your sexuality, your resources, every part that makes up you, offer the parts of your body in slavery to righteousness. In other words, live day by day as a true citizen of God's kingdom. Day by day, thought by thought, let us become more like Jesus, who was the citizen of God's kingdom par excellence. In a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And afterwards, I encourage you to write on your sheet any personal application for you of this passage. So let's just be very still. And I'm going to invite the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit. And you might like to echo this prayer. Would you apply this word to me personally? As I ask, what does it mean for me to offer the parts of my body as slaves to righteousness? And now as I mention areas, if the Spirit pinpoints something to you, stay with that. Let him reveal any sin which is entrapping you. Let him reveal any purpose God has for you. And ask God, what specifically do you want me to do? First of all, think about my feet and the places they take me. Are they taking you somewhere God does not want you to go? That is a trap. Does he want you to let them take you somewhere new? My mind and my imagination and the places they take me. Do you have similar thought patterns that I was describing? that you want to enter into freedom from and decide 
you will do it differently. My hands. My hands as an expression of my abilities, as an expression of my influence over others. My sexuality and my capacity to love. Are you growing in righteousness or somehow enslaved? My eyes and my ears and what goes into my mind through them? What are you reading and listening to? What does God want you to read and listen to? Where is their life for you? And any other parts of who I am that God may bring to your mind in the silence. And now a prayer. All-powerful and all-loving God, give us in Christ the determination we need to resist sin and to pursue righteousness in these specific areas you have shown. And may the lovely character of Jesus grow in us day by day until we see you face to face. For the glory of Christ. Amen.